0: Well, good morning. I'm excited about uh, our new series that we kick off today. We're starting a series called Worthy, and uh, through the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking through the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms, 150 chapters. It's not going to be 150 weeks, so relax. It's a short series, and there's a lot of ways you could go through the book of Psalms, but uh, we want to focus on the unique way in which the Psalms invite us to see how God is worthy, and the ways that it teaches us to pray, and to worship, and praise, and all these things. And I'm very excited because there's a unique way that For the first eight weeks of our year, our entire church will kind of be moving together. So uh, from kids all the way through adults, we're all going to be kind of looking at these similar themes and reflecting on them together. In fact, if you'll notice on the back of the note sheet, there's a reading plan for you to read through the book of Psalms. Our hope is that for the next couple months, if you're looking for something as kind of a devotional idea, that uh, each day there's a psalm or a few psalms that you can read through and kind of think about and reflect and pray through. In fact, if you Uh, Like Beach Point on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, there's a a daily prayer prompt. So out of one of the Psalms that we're reading that day, an idea of how you can pray. Pray for the church and pray for yourself. Uh, And then... Uh, there's a, we'll we'll be having a mission project actually related to our series that will kick off next week. Uh, And we'll kind of, we'll hint at it a little bit today. It'll make sense more next week uh, as we talk about it. And then one of the really cool things is uh, uh, Mitchell and his gorgeous voice uh, wrote a song, uh, an original song called As Worthy As You Are. And I cannot, I honestly, I cannot wait for you guys to hear it and learn it and get it stuck in your head like it's stuck in mine. So uh, it's, it's, I'm really excited for us and launching all together uh, through this. And so when you begin to think of this theme of worthy, uh, we've been talking about it as a staff since fall. And and I found myself thinking about what kinds of things in my life that I ascribe worth to and and things that I think are worthy of my attention or praise. Uh, I found myself uh, thinking back to about 15 years ago. And uh, I used to own a little business, a little company called Junior Hockey Pros, and we would go after school uh, and, uh, to these private schools, and we would, we would teach kids to play roller hockey and set up leagues and all kinds of things. And it, it became a little, a small little successful thing, uh, enough that the Anaheim Ducks saw what we were doing and hired our company to work with them. And I thought that was pretty cool. And so the very first event that we ever did with the Ducks, we went to a school, and, uh, and I decided I would go and be on the team that day. And it was, uh, I, you have to understand, I, as a kid, dreamed of being a professional athlete. That was like my, my dream, my goal. And so this was the closest I was ever going to come for that dream to come in reality. So the Ducks gave me like a uniform. I had like these sweatpants and a polo shirt and a hat. And I drove in in their truck, and, and I got to represent, like, oh, we have to, which you have to understand, I'm a huge Kings fan. I don't like the Ducks, but, I, but they were giving me money, so I was sellout. So I was like, we have the Ducks, da, da 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 and we did this. And we, so all day long, hundreds of kids, we took them through these, these little drills, and we played games, and we gave out all this free stuff, and it was super fun. At the end of the day, a couple of the kids came up to me and said, Coach Bill, can we get your autograph? And I was like, ha, that's so cute. I'm a nobody. In fact, I would devalue that piece of notebook paper if I actually put my name on it. So go away, kid. You're bothering me. You know, kind of, ah, hush, ah shucks. And my friend Jeff, who was also a youth pastor at the time, uh, uh, Wilson, he, he looked at me and he's kind of making fun of me. And one of the guys that we had with us was uh, 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 on staff with the Ducks. And he said to me, he said, Bill, we have hired you as a coach of the Anaheim Ducks and so if a kid comes up to you and asks for your autograph we want you to give your autograph we you represent the ducks if they ask for your autograph you go ahead and give it we give you permission to all right so a couple other kids came up they're like hey coach bill can i get your autograph now, I had practiced my autograph for years. As a, I mean, there are baseballs all over my old home of me just kind of work. If you ever see me sign anything, it's I have a rather flamboyant signature. I worked on it for years. And so I was like, okay, kids, so I, I start autographing. Before we knew it, myself and Jeff— we had a line of over a hundred kids. Like this huge line of kids in line to get our autographs. Like we're total nobodies. And, and these, all these kids are in line. At one point, a teacher comes up and she hands me a puck. And she says, will you sign my puck? And on the puck was uh, the autograph of Temu Solani. Now, Temu Solani, just so you know, tonight the Ducks are going to retire his jersey. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer. He's one of the greatest hockey players ever. I'm like, please, don't let me or anyone ever sign this puck, but especially me uh, sign this puck. So it was this weird experience where my ego kind of exploded through the the roof. And at the same time, I, I began to think, I am not worthy of this kind of attention. It was a rather humorous moment. But I, I began to think about this, like this moment in which everyone thought I was so great and gave me all this praise and attention. And I was not worthy. And I started thinking about what things in my life do I do that to? What, what things do I ascribe worth to that really don't deserve that kind of praise and that kind of admiration? My, my worship, my life. And, and in these next weeks, uh, we will look at this a little bit uh, through this series. The Psalms are amazing. It's a, this incredible book of poetry and wisdom. And, and there's two things that you will see that I, I, I they're kind of my prayer for you uh, as we go through this book. One is the Psalms will bring to light, in essence, the, the, the wonder of who God is. The, that in some ways you see this, this picture of his power and his might uh, a big word we use is is that his transcendence, that there is, he's unmatched. There's no one like him. And the more we begin to see the way the Psalms uh, paint this picture, really all scripture does, but the Psalms are so great at painting this picture that there is no one like our God. It, one of the ways that you'll kind of experience, if I could try to define it, there's a you kind of get this idea of God's godness. Like that there's, there's something about him that makes him so wholly different than us. And uh, one of the great verses, I think, that captures this is Psalm 89, verses 7 and 8. And I just want to kind of set a theme a little bit before we turn to our passage for the day. But listen to these words. And you get a picture of this. In the council of the holy ones. So try to imagine what it would be like to be invited into this Council, this room, whatever it is, but you come in and the holy ones are there, the angels, the saints, whatever. In this council, God is greatly feared. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in this room and you see all these, all, everything in there makes you feel like you should worship them and they all bow down there in worship of God? He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? And you'll hear this question or you'll see it in a a statement. This idea comes out, especially in the Psalms, but all through the scripture, there's this idea. Who is like you, Lord? Who is like you? And of course, the answer always is no one. No one is like you. You are mighty and your faithfulness surrounds you. And so one of the things that we will see is, in essence, the the greatness of God. But we will also experience the, the intimacy of God. So there's this amazing thing in which the Psalms will help you see that God is not only creator, but he is sustainer of the universe. Uh, he is intimate. He, he counts each hair on our head that he hides us under the shadow of his wings. He, he lifts up the downtrodden from the dust. We call this... Uh, imminence. It, it means that he's near, that he's involved, that that in essence he didn't just, uh, you know, uh, get the universe going, uh, wind it up, and then remove himself from it. God is intimately involved with his creation. He is intimately involved in our lives. And so there's this this subtle dance that takes place in scripture that we see the greatness of God, And then the nearness and the closeness and the the intimacy of God. That is, that just is so amazing. He is almighty. He's holy other. He holds all the creation in his hands. And yet he cares and loves about each one of us. He wants to guide us and lead us and shepherd us. And walk through the darkest valleys of our life with us. And so when you think of one, you'll find that you can't think of one without the other. And so as we travel through the Psalms and really... As we travel through scripture, we want to continue to see the way that these two unique things happen. That this great God, and, and even we think of it, this, it what the series we just came out of and, and the season of Christmas. This great God coming to be with us, taking on flesh. This is, this is what is so amazing about our God. And, and we see this in the Psalms and really we see this in the whole story of, of what God is doing. Uh, if any of you have young kids, one of the things what we would encourage you to do is there's a book called The Big God's Story uh, by Michelle Anthony. And we'd encourage you to pick it up to read with your kids. Uh, our hope would be that you would not read scripture with your kids like you would maybe like Aesop's Fables or something like that. That there's, it's just a book of morality and book of good, uh, a good uh, principles of how to live. But in some ways, we want to see the whole story of, of, of who God is and what he's doing. That, that from beginning to end, his greatness and his, his imminence, his nearness, is all tied together. So God creates the world, but he dwells among us. He walks in the garden with us. And in redemption and salvation, it's this great God working on our behalf. Until ultimately, the, the new heaven, the new earth, where heaven and earth come together, where God dwells among his people. The great God, heaven and earth collide together in one. And so when we begin to see that all that God has done, is doing, will do, we kind of begin to understand a bigger picture of Scripture. And so we want to understand this unique way that this great God is near and working on our behalf. So let's start, let's start seeing this through Psalm 33. Psalm 33. And we're going to look at uh, this great hymn of praise. It's a song. It's a hymn. And it celebrates who God is, what he does, and then uh, it really bookends uh, how we should respond to him. And so we're going to read it. We're going to see two quick things about uh, who God is and what he does. And then we want to think about how we respond to him uh, as we see the psalmist reveal to us that he is worthy. It begins this way. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous It's fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with a harp. Make music to him with a 10 string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people's. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches over all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. On those who hope in his unfailing love. To deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Well, two things I want us to just see through here, and then we'll talk about responding. And the first thing that we see about who God is and what he does is is about his power. God's power is like no other. His power is like no other. And this becomes most obvious in verses 6 through 8 as we see this idea of him creating the heavens and the earth. In fact, in some ways, if we think about it, uh, the first five words of the first book of the Bible, in essence, kind of set a context for how we are to be in relationship with God. That in the beginning, God created. And when we begin to see him as creator, that he as creator and we as creation, we begin to have a context of how we are to be in relationship with him, and and, and respond to him. We see his greatness exposed. For me, verse 7 is is so interesting. When you begin to think of his power, you get this idea, God, through his very word, can create this control, this power that he has. And then verse 7, I I, I think about, uh, and maybe you can think of this, can you remember the first time you went surfing? Or, or can you think about uh, a time when maybe a friend came in or a family member came in from, from somewhere not near the ocean and they said, hey, we want to go surfing. And, and you went out or you took them out and they began to just kind of struggle just to paddle over the little one to two foot swells. And, and in the cold water, you're, you're panting, you're sweating, you're, you're just exhausted and you have the slightest uh, understanding of how great and powerful the ocean really is. And you're taken by this. I mean, we get excited this time of year when we start hearing the stories of Mavericks and Pipeline or whatever it is. And and, uh, I, I mean... There's a handful of people in the world who could even attempt to ride a wave like this. We, we look at this with anxiety in our heart like, oh my gosh, I could never. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in the middle of that wave. And we look at that with just, there's just such an awesomeness to it that anyone would even attempt to take on this. This is one wave of the sea. And there's this picture that the psalmist gives that God is the one who, if he wants, can capture all the seas in, in, in a jar. That he is, he's the one, as you have this kind of illusion of the, the exodus. You can imagine as he, just by a word, just by a command, he could cause the waters to just, to, to just jump up in heaps. To separate by his very command. This is who he is. This is his power. Such awesome power. As creator. And verse 8 says that we are to revere him. We 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 fear him, not out of not afraid, but we just see his awesomeness. I love on Sunday mornings, almost every Sunday morning, I will drive to to come here, I will drive past the ocean. Uh, just so as I drive down PCH, and I I I do that so I remind myself how small I am. I want to humble myself and remind myself I have I have really no power to accomplish anything today. But Almighty God, when I look at the ocean and I, and I see it as one thing in my life that I just go, gosh, just such awesome power the ocean has, and yet God, this is nothing for you. You store it up in jars if you want. You be the power today. You be the be our strength today. See, God is also unstoppable, and you see this in verses ten and eleven. God is the one being in all of creation who we can say, in essence, there's no disparity between what he wants and what he can do. You and I can't say that. There, we can't do everything we want to do, can we? There are things we wish we had the power to do, but we can't. But God is the one being in all the universe who, if he wants to do it, he can do it. And as we begin to see this, we see that verse 4 characterizes that, though. Of all his power, it's all characterized by verse 4. Everything he does is characterized by righteousness and truth and faithfulness. And then you see this phrase, and it came up a few times in the passage, unfailing love. In the Old Testament, this idea of God's unfailing love, it's, it's the love that he has that doesn't quit. It's his covenant love. He doesn't give up on on his people. He he continues to love and to be faithful to them, even when they are faithless. So many times as we read through the story of God and his people, you just think, God, you should just give up on them. But he doesn't because of his unfailing love. Everything motivated by, by righteousness, truth, faithfulness, unfailing love and, and for you and I, um, we have an advantage that the psalmist didn't have because you and I can look at the power of God and we can see it in the resurrection. We can see that our, our, our Savior didn't just come to be a martyr, but that he, he rose from the dead. See, there's hope for us. There's this resurrection power that is available to us now and forever that uh, the Apostle Paul could talk about. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know it. I want to experience it. I want to to walk in that power. Think about 2015 and the goals you've set, the resolutions you've created, the the desires you have. Probably if you looked at your list of whatever you've created, they would in some way uh, show you or help you understand that you are looking at things that are built around uh, motivating yourself or motivating uh, your power. It's all about your power. How can I have more willpower? How can I push my limit a little bit more? I don't know if I can accomplish this, but I'm going to try to push myself and see what kind of power I really have. And not necessarily a bad thing, but isn't it interesting that we're trying to figure out how our life can improve by our limited sense of power. And in the psalm, what we see here is a God of unlimited power. And this God of unlimited power wants to know us and wants to be available to us and make this power known in our life. See, you understand that if you look at the second thing, which is while his power is like no other, so is his presence. His presence is like no other. See, this power he wants to make available into our lives. See, on the one hand, it's so interesting because you begin to get this feeling like Dorothy before the great Oz that he seems almost unapproachable. You want to cower under his, his authority. But notice instead what the psalmist is doing. He's drawing us in. He says this in verses 13 through 15 that he sees us, that this almighty God sees us. And it's not just that he has the ability to see you. Notice that he watches you. He's watching over you. It it means that he's looking intently at you. He's not passive. He's not unconcerned about the things of your life. In fact, he's the very one who formed your heart. He cares very much about you. He sees you and he saves us. He sees us and he saves us. He's active on our behalf. And we see this in the next verses. We see that man is not strong enough. Your strength is not enough. And I don't know what your army is. I don't know what your horse and rider are in your life. Whatever it is that you think gives you strength and power. Whatever you're relying on in your life. Your talent, your ability, your money. Whatever it is that you think gives you this sense of power in this world. It will never be enough. It will never ultimately rescue you. But notice that the people who trust in him, who turn to him, who who hope in his unfailing love, that that power is made available in their lives. Of course, this is most evident to us in the gospel, that we realize how powerless we really are when we look at Jesus coming into the world, when we look at the cross and we see Jesus there on the cross for us, we realize how powerless we are, that, our, that we are far more sinful than we ever dared imagine, that we ever were really willing to admit, that God himself had to come and do for us what we were unable to do for ourselves. And so when we look at the cross, what we see, when we see Jesus there in our place, we realize how serious our sin is. But we also begin to see how great the love of God is. The unfailing love of God. That would, where God would send his one and only son into the world. Where the son of God would, would willingly take your sin and my sin upon himself. And in some ways the love of God. It, it begins to explode our imagination. It's far greater than we ever imagined. He's a rescuer. He comes for us. He sees us in our need, and he's, it's not as if he's apathetic at all. The cross tells us the absolute opposite, that he cares so deeply that he would pay the greatest sacrifice possible to be involved in our lives. And so this brings us to our big idea of not only today, but it really is the, the big idea of the whole series, and we kind of saved it to this moment for this purpose. But, but here's what I want you to, I, I hope that you will see this and kind of uh, wrestle with this during the next eight weeks. And the big idea is this, that God alone is worthy of our worship. God alone is worthy of your worship. That what the psalmists begin to say and what they're showing is that God and God alone is worthy of our worship. That when we see him for who he is, the closer we get and the more clear the picture gets. And the more we see and understand what he has done for us the more we begin to realize that he and he alone is worthy of our worship. Not only what he's done for us, but what he's doing now and what he plans to do. The fact that one day we'll stand before him, we realize that he and he alone is worthy of our worship. Romans 12 says it this way. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... See, Paul's saying this, if you think about who God is and what he's been willing to do for you, there is one response that makes sense. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't bring a sacrifice to him. Offer yourself as the sacrifice. This is is holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And what Paul's saying is there's only one response that makes sense. When we see God for who he is, we think about what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. Only one response makes sense. And that is to offer your life to him. To place your faith in him. To place your life in his hands. Each week we tell you that our our mission here is to develop authentic followers of, of, of Jesus Christ. And, and what in essence that means is our, our hope is, our prayer is that what you're learning to do is to surrender and trust him more and more with every part of your life. That you wouldn't only ask him to save you and give you a ticket to heaven, but you would realize that he and he alone is worthy of your life, is worthy of your worship. That every part of your life, your parenting, your, your parenting, your marriage, your career, your future, how you think about sex, how you think about uh, uh, money, every single topic of your life you would bring under the, the, the lordship of Christ. You would surrender it to Christ. You would trust him more and more and more because he alone is worthy. The psalmist says there's, there's, in this passage, here's two ways in which we worship him. And there's so many ways, but notice how the psalmist says, he says in verses 1 through 3, he's worthy of your praise. He's worthy of your praise. You see, look at the the list. Sing joyfully. Praise the Lord. Make music to him. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully. Shout for joy to him. Of all the things in life that we celebrate, of all the things we praise in life, praise God. The Lord, because He's worthy. I I think about all the things that I give such wholehearted praise in my life, and yet there are times where my worship of God is pretty half hearted. Even last Saturday, um, my son Andrew and and, uh, friend George and I went to uh, the LA Kings hockey game. At the end of the game, the Kings are down by three goals. There's like four minutes left in the game. And so they go down by three. Literally, everyone streams for the exit. And we decided we'll just stay because it'd be probably better with parking if we actually stayed than if we left early because so many people left. But in the final two minutes of the game, one, two, three goals to tie the game. I'm telling you, the entire place erupted. It, th- talk about praise. They were, we were cheering. We were screaming. We were high-fiving. We were chest bumping. We were running up and down the aisles. I mean, we were just going uh, hysterical. It was complete hysteria. Bananas in that arena. Our praise being heaped on these athletes. And then 18 seconds later, the other team scored and they lost and it was over. And you can't help but think, how is it that I could give myself so wholeheartedly to the praise of something that is so fleeting, that is so insignificant, but I can be in a, in a time like this and, we're, and there's ideas or songs or prayers and I'm, I'm half interested, I'm halfway there and I'm halfway working on my, my list of something else I've got to get done this week. And I'm singing the song, but I'm also thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch. And, and I just look at that, and I, I realize we're all human. And we all struggle with, with that kind of stuff. It's, it's a sad commentary of our, our world tonight. I realize I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, but the average, the average person now in our country only attends church three out of eight weeks. So about, almost, we're almost at one out of every three. We just don't think it's that important to worship God, to praise him. It's just not that big a deal to us anymore. And it's a sad commentary and it speaks to where things are going. But everything is moving towards the worship of God. All of creation. Everything is, as the story comes to its, its climactic conclusion, it's all moving to the worship of God. Listen to Psalm 86.9. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. After this, uh, uh, Revelation 7 says this, After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe, nation, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every nation, every tribe, every people, all gather together. I think of the the two groups that we're working with, the Aita and the Manga, as we're translating the Bible, we're we're seeing some of the first Christians in in their history, that that they will be there, that everyone from all tribes, all nations, everything's moving towards everyone joining together to give God the worship he deserves. They've all come together to see how great he is and how good he is and what he's done for us. In fact, everything we do, every every outreach, every mission, every project, every act of service, is all ultimately for this purpose, to lead people to the worship of God. One writer says it, I think, really well. He says, mission exists because worship doesn't. You were made, you were made to worship God. You were made to enjoy God forever." The psalmist says, praise him, praise him. And then he ends in kind of like a a bookend on the other end, verses 21 and 22. He says, he is worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your trust. Notice that he says, in essence, our hearts rejoice. We trust you. We trust in who you are. We trust in your unfailing love. Our hope is in you. How are we going to make it through this? We don't know, but you'll get us through this. We trust you. We trust in who you are. We trust in your power. We trust in your unfailing love. And we worship him by showing him that we trust him. And and I realize, uh, you know, as I thought about this and I I, I was wrestling with, um, for some of you, this is a challenging season of your life. And I know the feeling is if God is so powerful, then where is he? If God is so present, and how come I don't feel him? And the psalmist is calling us at the very end to a, a, a hopeful waiting, to a faithful endurance. And one of the guys that helped me make some sense of this and maybe it will, it will help you is a guy named Larry Crabb. He wrote a book called The Pressure's Off. And, and in the very end of the book, he, he ends by telling a story. He was three years old. And he said, for the first time, he said, I wanted to try to go to the bathroom by myself. I thought I was, I, I was strong enough to be able to do it. He said, so I, I, he goes, I went upstairs. I went into the bathroom. I closed the door. I locked it behind me. And then I did my business. And then I came out. I, I, he says, I, I finished and I, I felt this strong sense of self-satisfaction. But he says, I, I, I reached my little three-year-old hand to the doorknob. And I, I didn't have the strength to turn the knob. And so I I tried and I tried and I tried and then I panicked and I began to scream. My mom heard my scream, so she began to scream. So then my dad, as dads do, wanted to fix this. So he, he ran outside, he grabbed the ladder, he threw it up against the house, he climbed up to the second story window, he pried the window open, he climbed into the room and with his big hand he grabbed the knob and he turned it and opened the door. He said, I looked at my dad, said thanks, and I ran out and played. And he said, I, I began to think about that moment. I began to realize that that is often how I think about my life with God. That I get myself in trouble and I work and I fidget and I do all these things in my own power. And if I can't do it, then I begin to scream and cry out for God. And, and I, 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 I yell at him to come and unlock the door and open it up to blessing. Listen to how he, he ends the book. He says these words. He says, sometimes he does. But now... No longer three years old, but approaching 60. I'm realizing that the Christian life doesn't work that way. And I wonder, are any of us content with God? Do we even like him when he doesn't open the door we most want opened? When a marriage doesn't heal? When rebellious kids still rebel? When friends betray? When financial reverses threaten our comfortable way of life? When the prospect of terrorism looms, when health worsens despite much prayer. When loneliness intensifies and depression deepens and ministries die. God has climbed through the small window into my dark room. But he doesn't walk by me to turn the lock that I couldn't budge. Instead, he sits down on the bathroom floor and says, come sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into the room to be with me matters more than letting me out to play. I don't always see it that way. Get me out of here, I scream. If you love me, unlock the door. Dear friend, the choice is ours. Either we can keep asking him to give us what we think will make us happy. To escape the dark room, to run into the playground of blessings. Or we can't accept his invitation to sit with him. For now, perhaps in darkness. And to seize the opportunity to know him better. And represent him well in this difficult world. I realize for some of you, this is a a dark season. but The psalmist says, look to him. Trust him. In fact, what we're going to see through the psalms is that... In, in every season of life, no matter what it is that we're going through, that we can see that God is worthy. That when we delight, we can praise. When we find it tough, we trust. When we blow it, we can confess. When we're filled with pain, we lament. When we're mistreated, we give God our anger. And when we see God's blessings, We give thanksgiving. He and he alone is worthy of your worship. And so let's take a moment to pray. And I want to invite you to to two things. Maybe this morning you just need to, in essence, kind of begin the year by praising him. Maybe there's a way in which you realize, Lord, I'm, I'm 11 days into the year and I have not even stopped to recognize how great you are. Forgive me. And I just want to take a moment now to praise you. Or maybe you need to invite him into the dark room of your life right now. You need to invite him in to, to say, I want to trust you more. Come sit on the floor with me and help me figure out what in the world is going on. And reveal those things to him. So let's take a moment. I'm just going to give you a moment to quietly pray, to reflect, to so listen to the God's spirit. And then in just a moment, the team will lead us through final song.